Well, hey there, my name's Norton, and uh, welcome to this supplemental podcast for the We Believe series. So this is part 1B, and um, this is one of those extra podcasts. Uh, just to give you some background on that, we don't do these too often, um, but every now and then we do a message, and um, a, a Sunday message during our Sunday service. And so if you subscribe to our, our podcast most of the the messages are simply the the sermons or the messages from Sunday morning. But every now and then, there's some extra content that either we couldn't fit into the message, but we still think is important, uh, or or maybe it's just some some historical or or theological background that that we know not everyone would enjoy or appreciate, but maybe some would. And so um, every once in a while, we throw some of that extra information into an extra podcast. And, and we're going to do that some during this series. The series is called uh, We Believe. And we are talking about the Apostles' Creed and why we say the Apostles' Creed and why it's the statement of faith at our church. And so in the last message, uh, I talked a little bit about just the importance of creeds. And so today, I want to get very specific and tell you a little bit about the Apostles' Creed itself. I want to tell you the history of the Apostles' Creed, where it came from, uh, who wrote it, when it was first written, why, basically, uh, what's the genealogy, if you will, of the Apostles' Creed. And then uh, I want to tell you about one other famous historical creed and how uh, the Apostles' Creed is different from that other one and and give you some background on, on both of those. So mostly a history lesson today, but I think it's a history lesson that will have some really important insights uh, about the Apostles' Creed that I think can be really relevant and helpful for all of us today. So let's jump into some history. Um, It's called the Apostles' Creed uh, because this creed is said to summarize the core tenets of the Christian faith that were passed down from the apostles. Uh, the apostles are those group of, of men and women who were the first generation of the followers of Jesus. Um, not just the 12 famous ones, though certainly those, but, but others as well. And that first generation, the people who actually heard Jesus and saw Jesus and, and wrote down his teachings and then began to, to start this movement. Um, so this creed is named after them. Uh, now, there's a legend that developed um, hundreds and hundreds of years later, and it became quite popular in the Middle Ages and the Medieval Ages, um, that the apostles themselves, the actual 12 apostles, the original 12 disciples, uh, wrote the Apostles' Creed. In fact, there's a legend that you could break the Apostles' Creed up into 12 different sentences or 12 different parts, and each apostle contributed one of those parts um, but we know it's just a legend. <laughs> it, it's, it's, it's not true uh, in the sense that it sort of developed and it, it sounded cool and it sounded interesting and people wanted to believe it, but um, there's all sorts of historical evidence to show us that it, it didn't actually develop that way. The Apostles' Creed was not written by the apostles and certainly not in 12 different parts where everyone sort of contributed a sentence. So when you hear the name Apostles' Creed, that doesn't necessarily mean the apostles first wrote it. It just means that the earliest references we have to this creed um, slowly start to call it the Apostles' Creed in the 2nd and 3rd and 4th centuries. 
Because the Christians at that time said this creed, these things that we are saying and affirming, these beliefs that are a part of our faith, they have been passed on to us. And they, and they summarize the core teachings of the original apostles and the New Testament documents. So it, it summarizes their teachings and it comes from them. And maybe, maybe they summarize those teachings and, and pass them on an oral form. And at some point, someone wrote them down. So they're sort of connected to the, the first generation of the apostles. But it doesn't mean they actually wrote this creed. Now, let's talk about when it was first used. And um, this is where things get difficult because... Uh, remember, there's all sorts of limitations when it comes to ancient history, right? We're talking about documents or, or histories or stories or things that happened, you know, 2000, 1900, 1800 years ago. So it's not like we have, you know, detailed meeting minutes of every church service or every gathering of Christian leaders from the first or second or third century so that we could actually pinpoint exactly when the Apostles' Creed was written or, or who was the first person who wrote it down or if there was a group of people that were the first people that sort of decided what would be in it and what wouldn't and how it would be used. We just don't have that kind of historical documentation. And, and remember, we don't have that about almost anything from this time period. We don't have very good historical documentation from Roman records uh, during this time period. And Christianity... In the first few centuries, uh, is a small religious sect, right? Sometimes facing intense persecution from the Roman Empire. And so um, there's, there's not a ton of writings. They were doing all they could to preserve the New Testament writings. And we have a few other writings. But, um, but the first references we have to this creed come from the middle of the second century. So roughly about 140 A.D. So remember, uh, the first apostles lived at the time of Jesus. That would have been about 30 A.D. That's roughly speaking when he uh, had his public ministry. Um, And so they were living at that time. And um, later in the century, they uh, died out. And we believe and have some decent evidence for this that John Um, sort of the famous disciple, uh, was probably the last living apostle and probably died right at the end of the first century AD, about 95 AD. So the first references we have to this creed come from roughly 140 AD. Again, these are sort of ballpark figures. So within a generation or two, you begin to see these references and and documents circling, uh, circulating around uh, documents uh, of the New Testament, right? Paul's letters and the gospel accounts and all that. And churches are reading these documents and they're studying them in their worship services. And then you begin to also see this summary of the apostles' teaching put into this creed form. And the creed doesn't replace the Bible. <laughs> It doesn't replace the New Testament. It doesn't replace any of the documents. Those are still the documents that are preached and studied and read out loud in church services. The creed just becomes this very short and concise summary of what the earliest followers of Jesus believed were the most central and important beliefs. And it first shows up, the first references we have to this creed are found in the city of Rome. 
And uh, if you ever read any scholarship or sort of academic works about this, um, sometimes you'll hear uh, the way scholars talk about this first version of the Apostles' Creed is sometimes called the Old Roman Creed. (laughs) Um, And there's a few tweaks that happen to the language over the course of a few years until it gets into its final form. But in the very original form that we begin to see this creed being used, it's it's used in the city of Rome. And so sometimes it's called, sort of the, the very original form is called the Old Roman Creed. But then within just a few years, this same creed is showing up in other places. Places like Gaul, which is modern-day France, part of the Roman Empire at that time, and North Africa, also part of the Roman Empire at that time, into the late 2nd century. And then when you get into the 3rd century and the 4th century, you start seeing uh, this creed referenced in all kinds of other places and used by all kinds of churches and Christians wherever churches exist. And at this point, it's referred to as the Apostles' Creed. Now, What's fascinating is how the creed is first used or how it came about. Because apparently it was first used or created or developed in conjunction with the practice of baptism. So early in the history of the church, when someone uh, chose to become a Christian, they chose to become a follower of Jesus, they were baptized. Baptism uh, underwater uh, was a symbolic representation that my life is changing. I'm not going to live according to my old ways and my old beliefs and my old sins and my old life. I'm now going to live a new life and a new way, and I have new beliefs because I'm now a follower of Jesus. And as far as most historians can tell, um, baptism of infants was not happening in the early church. It probably didn't come until later in the history of the church. There's some debates about that, but for the most part, we don't think that infants or babies were baptized early in the history of the church. Um, There are some reasons that that practice is adopted later, and I can't go into that now, but, but that wasn't a pattern in the early church. Baptism was a symbol of someone who was changing their life right, was choosing to follow Jesus, which was a big deal because Christianity was not culturally accepted at this time. Christianity was not a part of the fabric of culture. It was not socially accepted until really the fourth century. And so, um, in fact, there's even periods, not all the time, but there's periods of intense persecution of Christians. So choosing to become a Christian and then publicly identifying that by getting baptized was a big deal. So if you were a kid or a teenager or an adult and you said you wanted to become a Christian and you wanted to get baptized to demonstrate that and show that, um, usually church leaders said this. They said, well, let's make sure you fully understand what you're getting into, right? Let's make sure you understand what we've taught you about God and what we've taught you about Jesus and and what you truly believe because... uh, (laughs) you're choosing the narrow way, right? You might be choosing a hard road. This, this, is a, this could be a, a tough choice, and you need to count the cost, and this is an important decision. And so we want to make sure you truly understand what you believe when you're doing this. And so uh, the tradition became, if somebody said they wanted to become a Christian and get baptized, uh, churches would do baptisms just once a year. They didn't just do it any time. They did it once a year, and they always did it on Easter Sunday, right? Because baptism is a celebration, 
and it's symbolic of, of dying with Jesus. You go under the water and then rising from the dead with Jesus when you come out of the water. And so Easter, of course, is a very fitting uh, and joyful time to do this. And so um, when someone wanted to get baptized, they would say, let's wait till Easter. We'll baptize you on Easter Sunday. But then they decided, let's prepare you for baptism for the 40 days leading up to Easter. And this is going to be a time where you need to really examine your heart and you need to examine your life and you need to repent of your, your old ways and you need to seek God's forgiveness. And, and, and then, of course, um, this practice of, of preparing for Easter, of examining your life, of repenting of your sin, of, of, of this process of, uh, of preparing for what you're going to celebrate on Good Friday, on Easter, this became so meaningful, not just for the people who were getting baptized, but for the entire church. And so slowly the church said, hey, we should all take part in this 40-day preparation, right? And this becomes the season of Lent that we still practice today. But going back to those uh, people preparing for baptism in the second century, during those 40 days, not only would they uh, sort of examine their lives and, and confess sin and do those kind of things, they would also focus on solidifying what it is that they believed. And so they would go through these periods of instruction. Apparently, they would meet with church leaders or a pastor. The pastor would walk through the core and, and, and most important teachings of the Bible to make sure they understood it and, and help them clarify and summarize what it was that they were embracing so that when they got to the day of baptism, and it was time for someone to be baptized, and we have records of this. There were lots of intricate customs that went into this baptism ceremony, and I won't go into all of them right now, but at one point in the ceremony, the pastor would invite the person, and in front of everyone, the pastor would say to this person, what do you believe about God? And the person would say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator, of heaven and earth. And then the pastor would say, and what do you believe about Jesus Christ? And the person would say, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And then they would go on and say everything they believed about Jesus. And then the pastor would look at them and say, and what do you believe about the Holy Spirit? And they would answer that question too. And only after they verbally declared these beliefs, then they would get baptized. And in fact, the custom back then was to dunk them under the water three different times. The pastor would dunk them under the water in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And so this creed was first used to teach people who were preparing for baptism the central tenets of the Christian faith. It was used so that they too could now declare that they were joining this faith. They were becoming a part of this community of faith. And of course, somewhere along the way, kind of like Lent, churches said, you know what? Uh, we don't have to just talk about these tenets of our faith and, and, and declare these tenets of our faith and ask the people who are getting baptized to confess these tenets of their faith once a year, right? It would probably be good if we all 
revisited these tenants, if we all declared and confessed out loud this faith that we hold together. And this creed, this apostles' creed began to be used in churches regularly. And as Christianity spread around the world, all Christians everywhere would continue to affirm these same words over and over and over in different languages. The original language we have these, this creed in was Greek, and then we have it in Latin, and then we begin to see it in all sorts of other languages. And, and, and for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? Even, even when there's debates in the Middle Ages about all sorts of other issues, Christians continue to affirm. The Apostles' Creed. Even in the 11th century, there's this big split between what we now call Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. Both the Catholics and the Orthodox groups, even though they split over other issues, they continue to affirm the Apostles' Creed. Even when the Protestant Reformation happened and, and a group breaks away in Europe and, and creates sort of all, all of the Protestant denominations, you have someone like John Calvin, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation. He writes his most famous book about Christian theology, and in his book he divide, devotes an entire chapter to the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> right? It's the simplest, clearest, oldest Statement of faith that unites Christians everywhere. So that's a little bit about the history of the Apostles' Creed and why when you start to study the history, you can see how important it can be for a church even today, 2,000 years later, to find themselves as a part of that history whenever we say the Apostles' Creed together. Now, let me talk about one other creed that perhaps you've heard of if, if you grew up in church or you've been around church for very long. It's called the Nicene Creed. And it's a really important creed as well. And uh, in fact, there's even some churches today that continue to say uh, both the Apostles' Creed and sometimes they also say uh, the Nicene uh, Creed. Or, or they make both of these their official statement of faith. And um, if you had time, you, you can do this yourself on your own to, to pull up. You can just Google both of them, right? Or, or go to Wikipedia or whatever. If you pull up the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and look at them, you can see they're actually quite similar. There's a lot of overlap between the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. In fact, if you don't know much about them and you've never spent much time reading them, it would be easy for uh, uh, somebody who's new to these creeds to just simply get them mixed up. Right to see, like, aren't these kind of saying the same thing? In fact, it's, it would be easy to even wonder why do we need two creeds? Right? What, what's the difference? Why, why would why would a church accept one or and not the other? Or why would a church say we need to have both? Right. So, let me just tell you a little bit about the Nicene Creed and and unpack for you how it's different than the Apostles' Creed. Um, and it's all connected to a guy named Arius. <laughs> So in the early 4th century, uh, there's this guy named Arius. Um, he's born in the middle of the 3rd century, so I think 250s, 260s, something like that. So late 3rd century, early 4th century, Arius is a leader. He's a Christian leader in the church in Egypt. 
And the church is large in Egypt at this time. And so he's a Christian, and, uh, and yet he develops an understanding of Jesus that he begins to teach. And the way he begins to teach who Jesus is, is that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one that God sent and who died on a cross and rose from the grave. So, so he affirms all of those things. But Arius says, Jesus was not really God himself. Jesus was born from God. Jesus was, was God's only begotten son, as you know the old English translation of John 3.16 says. But for Arius, there's only one God, and it's God the Father. And when God the Father saw that humanity needed a Savior, he created this human, and he gave this human divine attributes. And that's who Jesus was. Jesus did not exist eternally with God. Jesus was not God himself. Jesus was given this divine attribute and had divinity, but it was only because he was given to it from God. Now, um, Arius' understanding and, and his explanation of how all this works is, is way more intricate than that. I am, I am just skimming the surface. I'm just giving you like the, the easiest and simplest explanation of what he was trying to teach. But essentially, he just said there's one God, and it's God the Father, and that's it. And Jesus is awesome, right? And uh, God gave Jesus these divine powers, and Jesus died on a cross, and he gave salvation to people, and all of those things. But Arius says there was a time when Jesus did not exist. There's not a second or even third. There's not a lot of talk about the Holy Spirit, but basically he's saying there's not a second or third member of the Trinity. This whole idea of there being a Trinity for Arius, it just, that's not right. And that went directly against how all Christians up until that time had understood that God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Based on sort of the way the New Testament describes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, there had slowly emerged this idea that God was a triune God. And so what Arius was saying was against that. And so in three 25 AD, there was a huge meeting of all the major Christian leaders around the world, and they all came together. And, 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 and by the way, Christianity had become accepted in the Roman Empire by this time. In fact, the Emperor Constantine um, saw that there were these debates that were springing up all around the Roman Empire about whether Jesus was actually God or he was not God. And some people were following Arius and what he was saying, and other people were saying, no, it's wrong. And it was beginning to divide the church. And, and in fact, there was this movement that grew up around Arius, and it's called Arianism. And, and others were saying, no, it's flat out wrong. And it was just, it was causing all of this division. And so Constantine is the emperor now, and, and Christianity is accepted, and that's a whole other story. But but Constantine's the one who basically went to the Christian leaders and said, like, hey, I will convene the meeting. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll invite everyone, all the leaders around the Roman Empire of all the churches and all the major cities. I'll even be there. I'll emcee the whole thing, right? Which is it's crazy when you think about it. I mean, a generation before this, the Roman emperors are throwing Christians to the lions in the Colosseum. 
They're trying to destroy. There's this intense persecution right before this. They're trying to destroy Christianity. And now, just a generation later, the emperor is not only endorsing Christianity, is not only allowing Christianity to be practiced, but now he's gathering all the Christian leaders to talk with them about this deep theological topic. Now, Constantine didn't actually care about the theology, and he didn't even get involved in all the theological discussion. Constantine was a shrewd leader, and he cared about political unity in the empire. And if this little theological debate is causing division, then you guys need to come together and figure it out, right? Either Jesus is God or he's not, but figure it out and stop fighting with each other. And so all the leaders came together in 325 AD, and this is called the First Great Church Council, and they met at a place in what's modern-day Turkey, and the place was called Nicaea. And long story short, almost all of the leaders there, they debated this issue of Arianism. They talked about a few other issues, but the main one was Arianism, and they talked about it at length. And for the most part, almost all of the leaders agreed that what Arius was teaching was not what the Bible taught about God. It's not what the Bible taught about the Trinity. The Bible doesn't use the word Trinity. That word is, is, is sort of developed later, but it's not what the Bible taught about Jesus. And so the leaders all decided that coming out of this meeting, they needed to make it very clear exactly what historic Orthodox Christianity believes about God, about the Trinity, about Jesus. And again, there wasn't a ton of talk about the Holy Spirit this time, mainly Jesus. He's sort of the focus. But in order to clarify, coming out of this meeting, what Christians believed was true and what wasn't true, they wrote a creed. And the creed became known as the Nicene Creed. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing for you, uh, but you can look it up, as I said, and it's pretty similar to the Apostles' Creed. When you sort of glance at both of them, um, they both have a similar structure. Um, they even both have some of the same sentences. So it's very clear that the, the, the leaders at Nicaea, when they began to write the Nicene Creed, it's almost like they said, hey, let's just start with the Apostles' Creed and think about what we need to add to it. You know, I don't know if that's exactly what we did, but it seems like that's what they did because basically the Nicene Creed expands upon a few things that the Apostles' Creed only touches on. And and the most important, where it gets really specific, is about the nature of Jesus' divinity. And so uh, the Nicene Creed says, Jesus is, quote, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So that's exactly what the Nicene, I mean, it's not exactly because the Nicene Creed was originally written in Greek, so that's an English translation of it. But basically, they're, they're, they're trying to say the exact opposite of what Arius had been teaching. Arius had said that Jesus was similar to the Father. He's kind of like the Father. He's been given some of the powers that the Father has. But the Nicene Creed makes it crystal clear. No, 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 no. 
Jesus isn't similar. Jesus is of the same substance as the Father, light of light, very God of very God. And so it has this long section about Jesus. And then here's how the Nicene Creed ended. It says then, after the long Jesus section, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. That's it. (laughs) One short line about the Holy Spirit. And then it closes with this paragraph. This is a direct quote. But those who say, quote, there was a time when he was not, and quote, he was not before he was made, and quote, he was made out of nothing, and uh, quote, he is of another substance or essence, or the Son of God is created or is changeable or is alterable. By the way, these were all quotes from Arius. So, so they're quoting Arius, and they basically the end of the creed, it says, anyone who says all of these things that Arius was teaching about Jesus, that he's not of God's substance, and he was created and changeable and all these things, then it says, if anyone says those things, they are condemned. And you know what the Greek word is there? It's literally the word anathema. It's where we get our word anathema. They are anathema. They are condemned by the holy, catholic, and apostolic church. And everyone that left the Nicene Council had to sign this statement. And everyone had to say it moving forward. If you couldn't say this Nicene Creed... If you couldn't affirm all these things about Jesus and end with, and if anyone says any of these other things, they are condemned and anathema by the Holy Catholic Church. If you couldn't say this, you were considered a heretic. Now, uh, the debates about Jesus' divinity, they actually continued. This didn't end them. In fact, it opened all sorts of new cans of worms. There were all kinds of technical debates you know, like, okay, if Jesus is the same as the Father, how does that work? <laughs> like, can, can we just explain how that works? Right? Everyone agreed Jesus was one with the Father. In fact, Jesus himself said that in, in the book of John. Jesus is very clear. I am one with the Father. But Jesus never explains how he's one with the Father. And so there's all of these deep and super academic and super technical debates about exactly how the Trinity works and how Jesus is one with the Father. And there's more councils. Um, oh, and, and they later they realized, um, you know, we should probably have said a little bit more about the Holy Spirit. Just to have one line about the Holy Spirit is kind of weak, right? So, so let's put a little bit more in the, creed, the Nicene Creed about the Holy Spirit. Um, and then later they decided at another council, uh, oh, that whole ending to the Nicene Creed where we you know, make people say, if you say all these other things and you're condemned, um, that's not a great way <laughs> to wrap up a creed. It's, 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 that's not very fun to say that, you know, who's condemned, who's anathema, to say that in church every week. And so there's actually a council in 381 AD, so about 60 years later, Um, It's in the city of Constantinople, and at that point, they revised the Nicene Creed. Um, They beefed up the section on Jesus even a little bit more. They beefed up the Holy Spirit section because it was kind of weak to start with. They got rid of the anathema statement at the end, 
And so that's the revised Nicene Creed. And so today, if you ever see the Nicene Creed written out, um, or you've ever attended a church that actually recites the Nicene Creed, they're actually reciting the revised version uh, from the council at Constantinople, not the original version. Um, So sometimes the revised version is actually called the Nicene slash Constantinopolitan Creed, which is really hard to say. And so uh, almost all the time it's just called the Nicene Creed, but it's the revised version that sort of came out later. Um, Now, back to today. Here's how this is important, and I'll start to kind of wrap things up. Um, There are some churches that have made the Nicene Creed their statement of faith. Um, And of course, it has all kinds of historical value. It's got huge theological value. It's got some really rich language in it. There's a few phrases in the Nicene Creed that are just poetic and and beautiful, and and there's some ideas in it. And it's a creed that, that I think all Christians should know, I mean, not know by heart, but they should learn about or they should understand and they should realize it's a significant part of our history. Um, And of course, at New Denver, we would certainly affirm uh, the Nicene Creed. We think it's really important and we would affirm all of the tenets and sort of the description um, of Jesus and the Trinity and all those things in the Nicene Creed. Uh, But we didn't consider making it our statement of faith for a few reasons. Uh, Number one, we just appreciated the simplicity of the Apostles' Creed. I mean, it's as simple as that. It's just more simple, and we appreciated that. We we also appreciated, number two, that the Apostles' Creed was the oldest creed. It was the most widely accepted creed. Um, And there's a few other qualities about the Apostles' Creed that that we really valued, and and we're actually going to just talk about those in the next message, so I won't I won't mention those now. But then number three, there's also the origins of these two creeds. And the Nicene Creed is different because it's born out of controversy. It's created to address a very specific issue. And so it's more a product of its time. And that doesn't mean it's not valuable. And that doesn't mean it's not extremely helpful in addressing this this one specific issue, particularly the deity of Christ. And if that's something that you want to study more, um, the Nicene Creed is a great place to start. This movement called Arianism and all the debates that were about that, it's a great place to start when it comes to learning about and studying this issue. But there just seems to be something more foundational, almost more, um, more pure, if you will, about the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed isn't trying to be comprehensive. It's not trying to address a specific problem. It's not taking one issue that's all the rage at the time and and trying to over-communicate about this one issue to make sure everyone understands where the church stands on this one issue, right? There's a need for that. And the Nicene Creed does that, but but the Apostles' Creed is, is pure in the sense that it's born simply out of a desire to help people who are choosing to become followers of Jesus and getting baptized, to help them articulate in the most simple of ways 
What is it that we believe? I mean, if you could get down to the bare bones, this movement that we're joining, this this community of faith that we're going to be a part of right now, what is it that we believe? Well, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's what we believe. That's the Apostles' Creed. Thanks so much for listening. I hope this is helpful, and I hope you'll join us for the rest of this series.